Welcome to Kick Cage. The bone frog takes its roots from the Navy frogman. The first symbol that we used for the underwater demolition teams was called Freddy the Frog, a uh, World War II symbol uh, that I actually have tattooed on me uh, when I graduated Buds. A friend of mine, Keith Kamura, was a SEAL corpsman, medic. I was also a SEAL corpsman. When he passed away, the bone frog then became this kind of iconic symbol of those that gave their lives for their country. I took the bone frog, what, um, what he drew, what Keith drew, and modified it a little bit. I put the trident in the pelvis, I changed the head, and to honor Keith and, and his memory, I didn't want to use what, what he had drawn, but make it a little bit different. But the symbolism is still the same. The bone frog represents those that gave their lives. I want all Americans to understand and recognize that symbol as a symbol of sacrifice for our freedom and our American way of life. Welcome once again to the Kit Cage, and today we are incredibly blessed to have Lieutenant Commander of the U.S. Navy SEALs, retired Tim. Tim, welcome to the show, and welcome to the cage. Thank you so much for having me, Dan. I'm excited to be here. Fantastic. I'm uh, looking forward to having a good chat with you. Now, during life, some of us are given the call um to serve a higher purpose some of us are driven to serve our country and, and join the military and, and that's not a choice for some of us but the choice that we do have is which service we join and, and what trade we do uh, now obviously you chose navy seals what was it that motivated you or drove you to go in that direction you know i get asked that a lot and i think for each guy it's it's different right yeah. For me, it was really a love of country. I, I love my country. I get chills when I see the American flag and the national anthem and all that kind of stuff. So it's a mixture of just patriotism, love of country. And I think all of us, when we're young, we really have that desire to, to push ourselves and to kind of see what you got, you know, and um, you get the chip on the shoulder and wanting to wanted to prove yourself a little bit. And, and so those are the things that really drove me uh, to join the SEAL teams And the, you know, it's a funny story. Uh, my dad was a Marine. And, uh, you know, when I told him that I joined the Navy, he's like, well, you know, that's something, I guess, you know, you get a little bit of discipline. It wasn't until later, you know, when he came to my bud's graduation and, and the instructor showed him around a little bit and he took me up on the berm and he apologized. He's like, man, I, I commend you for this. You know, was, that was a lot. Um, I didn't even tell my parents that I joined the Navy until, you know, I'd done it. And uh, I came home that night and I said, hey, you know, at dinner, uh, I joined the Navy. And I'm going to be a SEAL. And it was like, you know, out of a movie or something. It, it, everybody stopped eating and dropped their silverware. And they're like, what did you do? And uh, that was kind of the beginning of my journey. I was, uh, that was in 1990. Uh, I joined 
um, did 25 years after that. So it's quite a career. Wow. Um, let's start off with your journey to Buds because, um, getting a contract for going for, for the seals. I've known people take different routes to get to Buds uh, and do their seal training. Was yours a a very direct approach or, or did you go, uh, with a roundabout fashion? Mine was, it was direct. And at the time they had this uh, program called the dive fair program, um, to get direct orders or a chance to have direct orders, you had to sign up for six years at the time. So it was really a risk because uh, you sign the paperwork, you raise your hand, you do the whole thing with the uh, hope, with the understanding that they're going to give you orders, right? So you, you sign up, you go to boot camp, you have to pass the physical fitness test there then they send you off to a school and you have to do it again the swim the run the you know all that kind of stuff they put you through all the physical exams and and all that um and you have to do that several times uh before you get orders and i got orders out of a school i was a corpsman and uh they sent us down to 32nd street uh to work in the clinic until uh until we classed up um so i was down there you know working in the medical clinic for yeah, it was like a month before uh, before the next class classed up. And um, going through this training, obviously, um, it's it's more documented now, especially uh, with Hollywood uh, putting films out there. What uh, Bud School can be like um, now? How did you feel that you matured mentally from the start of this training towards the finish of the training? Looking back on it, you know, it's, it's, um, it's, it's as much mental as it is physical. And it's, I think it's ranked one of the most physical training in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, they put you through as much mental conditioning as humanly possible. You're, you're joining one of the most elite fraternities in the world. Just a few guys really when you think about it, that are part of this. And they want to make sure when you graduate and become part of uh, a platoon or a team that you're somebody that they can trust and count on. Uh, and they, they pull every trick in the book. They put you through everything they possibly can. And, you know, when I went back as a, as a BUDS instructor later in my career, um, you learn ways to push people's buttons to really stress them in different ways to make sure that they're mentally ready. And so you can't take any of this stuff personally when you're a student there. It's not personal. It's really meant to push you to your limit. Um, I use an analogy a lot of times, um, you know, they they put you through log PT, right? Those telephone poles. And one of the, uh, one of the things that they put you through is they get you wet and sandy. They put you at the bottom of a 20 foot berm, soft sand berm with a uh, tell. They have your, um, your boat crew push that log up the berm with your feet. Okay. So as you can imagine the you're, you, you start out and the log is straight, but you know, eventually it starts canting to one direction and you slide back down to the bottom. And I think it's a great analogy, not only for, 
the military, but for life in general. Life is like that, right? So you get going, things are going great, and all of a sudden you're a third of the way up and slide back to the bottom. That causes a lot of frustration and angst and finger pointing and blaming and all these things, and that's what they want. They want you to do that. You got to work these problems out, right? So they've got bullhorns and you're wet and sandy and everybody's yelling at each other and then they stop you. And they, they ask you, what, what is the problem? Was it the leadership? Was it the guys not trying hard enough? Was there one person in the boat crew that is causing the problem? And then they'll switch out the leader and it, you know, maybe they started out with the officer and then they throw somebody else in there. And, and you quickly learn that just because you have rank on your collar doesn't mean that you're born to lead, right? Yeah. There's guys that are maybe an E3 or something that step in and he leads you to the top. And why, why did that happen? How did you get there? How do you work out the conflicts that arise when everybody's pointing the finger saying, you're not putting out, you know, that kind of stuff. I love that analogy and I'll always remember it because life is full of adversity. Um, I took that with me into the military and BUDS is really, it's meant to be basic. It's a foundation that you build on all these things that build your confidence and, and uh, that you look back on when you're in combat situations, but also in life in general, we're constantly finding ourselves put in these positions where um, you have to adapt and overcome and work with other people and, and learn to lead people and all that kind of stuff. So that's what BUDS is all about. Those instructors, they're not there to take out a personal vendetta on you. They're there to teach you. They're there to help you grow, but both mentally and physically. By the time you graduate, you know, you've matured as a human being. You've learned a lot of lessons that you carry with you, but it's only the beginning. And it's really, you know, what you take with you and learn throughout your career that makes you what you are. So I think BUDS is a great place and it's, it's produced some amazing leaders that we've all seen, you know, come out the other side. You talk about your time at Buds incredibly fondly, uh, which I find you know fascinating because obviously it's such a tough time physically and mentally. Uh, what was your first um, light bulb moment while you were there, and um, if you encountered the differences between good and bad leadership during those situations? There's several light bulb moments. You know, there's you can endure more pain than you think you can. I think within us, you know, when we reach that point where we, we physically are like, I can't do this anymore. We're really only tapping into a small percentage of what we're capable of. Right. We can push ourselves so much harder. And I remember before I started buds, I had a, a friend of mine who was a SEAL and he said, look, man, you got to find ways mentally to push yourself further than you could ever imagine possible. And so when it comes to the cold, pretend it's hot. When it comes to the, an evolution, take it in chunks of time. Maybe, you know, it's if I could just make it one more hour, or if I can, I was getting down to maybe make it 30 more seconds and you reevaluate. Okay. It didn't kill me. I feel like I'm going to die, but it didn't kill me. I can do another 30 seconds. 
or it's so cold right now. It feels like it's burning my skin, but I'll just pretend it's hot, you know, and you find ways to mentally, I guess, trick yourself or uh, give yourself the mental bandwidth or capacity to push yourself further than you ever thought humanly possible. Those are some of the biggest light bulbs that went off for me. And when I went back as a BUDS instructor, and even once I was an officer and mentoring my junior guys, I would say to them, you are capable of way more than you ever thought humanly possible. Don't underestimate yourself, push yourself harder, find ways, get a mentor, push yourself. Um, You're capable of more. And obviously going through this, you would have had these instructors and obviously uh, leaders in your little platoons as you're going through buds. Did you um, have any experiences of what you imagine good leadership would be like? And did you experience bad leadership at the same time? Mm. I had some tremendous leaders, Uh, the guys, the officers that made it through my senior enlisted, uh, just fantastic. Um, I don't have any, any bad things to say. I think, uh, as a whole, these guys that made it through this process, both enlisted and officers, what came out the other end were just tremendous men that I have so much respect for. And I saw so much amazing leadership from them. I, I I honestly don't have a bad thing to say. Fantastic. That's uh... I like that because obviously you have such admiration for the people that have gone through the same process that, that you have. And you obviously yeah. knew how difficult it was. So once you've done your, your, your selection process, you've gone through buds, um, you've got your trident. Now you're getting put into your, your seal team, which seal team did you get put into and what sort of selection process was there to uh, point you in whichever direction you went? Yeah, I got, it's funny. It's <laughs> They give you, uh, when you graduate, a dream sheet and they they have you put down where you want to go and, you know, all that kind of stuff. It, uh, I've had that happen throughout my career in different scenarios. And uh, I think most young guys are hopeful, right? And, you know, I put down SEAL Team 1, 3, and 5, all West Coast teams, and they sent me to SEAL Team 8 out in Little <laughs> Creek, Virginia. Um I, I think either God or the Navy has bigger plans for you. And it worked out for the, for the best, you know, um, get me out of my comfort zone. I'm, I'm a West coast guy. They sent me to the East coast. Uh, our AO, our area of operation was the middle East Africa. Um, who would have known at the time, right? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, this was right on the heels of desert storm and all that. Uh, when I went in and, uh, you know, uh, after our first platoon workup and all that, we quickly were sent over to the to the Gulf uh, to enforce the embargo over there and, and do some different things. Um, but it was great. You know, I uh, I was put into a platoon after, at the time, they put you through what was called STT, which is our advanced training. So you go through BUDS, but then they take it to the next level and all the graduates, they split them up by coast and then everybody on the East Coast goes to, together and trains and does advanced training. And um, so we were all up and down the East Coast doing that. And you come back and you go in front of a board of, uh, of your peers. These are all the senior guys in their dress uniforms with, with medals that are going up over their shoulders, you know, <laughs> and so much. And they, 
they uh, they put you through a, a long day of questioning and different things, um, and it's it's incredibly stressful. And and uh, if you pass that, then you get your trident after doing all that, and then they you get selected for a platoon. And in that platoon, you know, I was the I was a corpsman, I was a medic, and so there was two of us in the platoon. That was my primary job, and and they break it out by. Uh, uh, at the time, we didn't have the SO rating. We had individual yeah. ratings. And so, you know, guys would work uh, the armory or they'd work uh, dive stuff or, you know, each person was given primary jobs. And then you were also given secondary things that you're responsible for. And yeah. so your your first platoon is the learning curve is really, really high. Um in my platoon, it was broken down into much more senior guys that had come back from uh, SEAL Team 6 or Red Cell at the time um, to help mentor us, to teach all the what are called FNGs. Uh, <laughs> I won't, you know what that means. Yeah. Uh, you know, they, they harass you, and, but they, it's brotherly love yeah. and it's done uh, with a purpose. And uh, some of the best times ever, you know, being a new guy and and learning from these uh, combat veterans and uh, fantastic, amazing stuff. So that was that was kind of what happened to me, you know, sent out to Virginia, went into a platoon and off you go. What was it like for you um, the first time landing in country? Because obviously, um, you know, you've spoken so fondly of buds and obviously this period of, of of being trained up in this advanced training yeah. uh, and you you talk about it almost sort of sort of light-hearted it was good times now going off to combat in a different country what was going through your mind at that time and, and how did you feel when you you know you first put your boots on the ground our first operation was uh vbss uh visit board search and seizure which is where we fast rope down onto uh under a ship. And, uh, we did this while the ship was underway. Um, we were enforcing the embargo in uh, in the Persian Gulf and, uh, they had identified a ship that was breaking then. So we, um, we were going to go, you know, board the ship and take it over, find out what was going on. And I remember, you know, we took off in the helicopter and, uh, they still had the lights on and everybody's kind of coking and joking, like, you know, team guys will do and everybody's kind of getting settled in with your gear and all your stuff. But I remember our chief at the time, you know, they turn the lights off, they turn this red light on inside the helicopter. So your eyes will adapt. And, uh, uh, things started getting a little bit more serious and I'm, I'm looking to the older guys, you know, they're still smiling and checking their gear and telling jokes and stuff like that. But, you know, chief says, uh, he, he holds his fingers up. He said, two minutes. And it went dead silent, just dead silent in there. You know, the facial expressions on these guys changed. And, you know, we'd been, we'd done a workup together for over a year and, and it was intense and it was repetitive and it was exhausting and long hours and, and all this training, training, training. And I equate it to like, you know, for those that played football, American football, uh, the first game of the season, when you're on the, kickoff team and you're you're jacked with adrenaline and you're ready for, you know the guy to kick the ball and and uh and all of a sudden you know in that helicopter everything changed and um you know when he said 30 seconds stand up 
you know, they give this little sign, 30 seconds, stand up, let's go. The helicopter changed speed um, and came to a flare over the top of this uh, uh, ship that was underway. And everything changed. It, it, it was fast. It was efficient. We were up on the quarterdeck within seconds. Um, and I, I remember looking back on that with all of our training, how, how fast everything went. And I thought afterwards, I'm like, it's almost unstoppable. You can't stop it. It's, it's so quick and efficient. We took that ship over in seconds and, uh, I was proud to be part of it. Uh, I love my brothers. Uh, I learned so much in that first platoon and, uh, uh, and I'll never forget that part of it. And, you know, it just continued after that night after night and different things that we did and um, all the things that you take away from those different experiences, you know, with your brothers and, and uh, love every minute of it. Because you were so well trained, uh, the movements of, of clearing corridors, clearing rooms, when you come onto that vessel, was it all just muscle memory? Do you feel that because you were so well trained and, it was instinct that it went so smoothly and so quickly. Yeah. It's uh, it was like flowing water moving through. It was so fast, so smooth. It just flowed and it was quick and bam, and it was over. And as even in the platoon, I was amazed at the efficiency and speed at which we did it. It was unbelievable. Unbelievable. Moving forward into your career, obviously, um, you became an officer and obviously you were leading men. Where did you find your leadership style? Was it adapted from people that you found as good leaders or was it something that you took with you as you were learning on your journey? So in the Navy, when you go from being enlisted to an officer, you're called a Mustang. I think uh, Mustangs, uh, they bring with them a certain perspective of being enlisted and what it's like. Right? And you can't forget that. You can't forget what it's like after a hard day of work going and having to swab the deck and clean the bathrooms. You're like, I remember thinking, I'm a Navy SEAL and I'm on my hands and knees scrubbing the deck. You can't have such an ego that you're above that stuff. And then when you become an officer, it's the same way. Um, you stay humble. You respect your enlisted men and the hard work that they put in every day and you love them and you put them first, you make sure that they're getting paid, that they're fed, that they're happy, that um, their families are taken care of. And I think that's what makes a great leader is thinking of others first. And it was one thing that was stressed to us, you know, when we were students, if you get up from the table, you ask everybody at the table, what can I get for you? It's not about me. It's about them. Um, and it's the same way when you come back off an operation, you take care of your gear, you take care of your men, take care of everybody else but yourself. It's a mindset. And so when you become an officer, it's the same way. You think of others first. You make sure that they're they're growing and they're promoting and they're making money and they're happy and they're successful and stop thinking about yourself. <laughs> and, and that I think is what makes a great leader. Um, the decisions 
are easy. The leadership part, I think, is easy if you have the right perspective and why you're doing things. And the guys know that. They can sense it. Um, and as long as you stay calm and everything you do, they talk about calm is contagious. Yeah. They don't want a leader that's indecisive or um, can't keep his wits about him. You just stay calm. You make your decisions and you move forward and respect the opinions of your enlisted men. Respect that and listen to them. It's very important. So by the sounds of it, obviously going from uh, an enlisted sailor to uh, officer, you, you have that perspective of, of working from the ground upwards and you, you can appreciate what they go through more than. Yeah, absolutely. Now, obviously, uh, you had a very long, successful career in the US Navy as a SEAL. Uh, it obviously comes to the point where you were going to leave. How did you feel about leaving the Brotherhood, leaving something that you've spent so many years in and given so much of your time and life to? It's a, it's weird. <laughs> it's unnatural. It's, uh, you have to take a lot of time to think about it. And uh, it's hard. I mean, in a lot of cases, these guys are closer to me than my own family. Yeah. Um, and to leave them, I, at the time, we had been at war for 16 years. Um, but it was time because my kids were at a point where we just needed to stop moving and they needed stability. They, you know, at that point, we'd moved 17 times. Um, it's too much on them. And so I made a conscious decision that that's what I needed to do. I'd done 25 years. Um, and it was time for me to move on. Um, and I made that decision and, uh, it's kind of what led to me starting this business. Yeah. And so we'll talk about that in a minute, but, uh, it's hard. It's really, really hard to do. Now, uh, obviously I've, I've interviewed quite a number of veterans and, and quite a few of them. Uh, have done veteran startups and in the US veteran startups veteran owned businesses is quite a popular thing um, very on trend with social media uh, and, and marketing um, how important do you think it is for a veteran startup to happen especially when it comes to raising awareness of TBIs and, and mental health injuries that they you know service men and women suffer Oh, the TBI thing, I, you know, it's, um, I had an injury in Baghdad, uh, hit with a mortar and got a TBI myself. Um, it's really important to bring awareness to that. And I think, you know, a lot of civilians are very sympathetic and they, you know, thank us for our services, uh, but they really don't. And you can't even blame them. They just, uh, because they haven't had the same experiences. They don't, they don't know what we've been through. And so um, I guess it's our job to kind of give them some insight as to what we've been through, through stories and, and examples of guys that gave their lives uh, for their country. And it's a hard thing to, to raise your hand and say, I'm willing to give my life for you, for our country, for our freedom and our American way of life. It's hard for people to understand that, that commitment that I'm, I'm willing to do that. 
And so I think that most veterans, it's what they're trying to talk about. They're sharing their experiences. They're wanting uh, the civilian population to understand, you know, there's some just amazing men and women out there that are willing to do that for their country. I I personally find that the U.S. Um, seems to do veteran startups uh, just that little bit better than the UK and probably raise awareness of these issues a little bit better than what we do here in the mm. UK. And, and that's one of the things I'm trying to do with the podcast is bring us up to date with how I feel that the US is portraying veterans and obviously talking about issues like PTS and TBIs and mm-hmm. depression and things like that, which I think is very important for the veteran community. Absolutely. Yeah, you're doing a great thing by bringing on all these guests and, you know, letting people talk and tell their stories. And, you know, the people that listen get each time they get a little bit better insight. Well, hopefully, and if it helps them on their personal journey, that's that's another another bonus. Now, uh, obviously, you alluded to the fact that you started up a business. Um, where did the idea of your veteran startup come from? Yeah. So at my retirement, I retired out of Fort Bragg, uh, so Army uh, base, and uh, yeah, I was at a joint command there. And um, in the Navy, we have these big, fancy, traditional retirements. The Army doesn't do that. And, uh, you know, we're all in our dress uniforms and cross swords and, you know, all that pomp and circumstance. Mm. And uh, I remember standing up at the podium, giving my retirement speech to this auditorium of people from my 25 year career. And I remember looking out over the audience and there's a lot of people that were missing that should have been there. And um, right in the middle of my speech, I get this idea, like (laughs) my wife, this, and uh, we got back to the hotel that night and I said, Hey, I have an idea, something to, to, to honor uh, the sacrifice of my brothers. I don't know what it is yet, but I, I, I've got an idea. And so that's where it started. And then it took me some time to think this through. And um, I needed a vehicle, a way to get this out to people to spur conversation and to talk about these things. And that's what led to the name of my company and um bringing awareness to what that is and why it exists and uh i don't know but it's been pretty cool so far and fun and i've met so many great people along the way and um it's pretty awesome started bone frog coffee was was born um now the bone frog itself um can you tell us a bit of history uh surrounding that because obviously that's steeped with navy seal mythology yeah so the bone frog itself was originally drawn by keith kimura keith was also a a medic in 18 delta like myself and um, he drew the original bone frog and when he passed away it became kind of this this symbol of those that gave their lives starting with keith and it grew from there to become almost a sacred symbol in the teams. You'll see this tattooed on guys and hats and shirts and on their trucks and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And uh, I thought it was appropriate to, to use the bone frog to get the message out. I, I really want every American to see the bone frog and recognize it for what it is as a, as a symbol of our freedom and sacrifice of these great guys that, gave their lives for all of us and tell their stories. And 
Um, I modified the image of the bone frog uh, to honor Keith. And really the bone frog takes its genesis from World War II, the old underwater demolition teams and the UDTs from yeah. back then that cleared the beaches in Normandy and in the South Pacific. And you know, those were considered the frogmen of the Navy. And, and you know, the newer iconic logo, I guess, is the bone frog. And that's what it stands for. And uh, it, people love it. And a lot of people come up and they're like, what the heck is that? And I'm like, I am so <laughs> glad you asked. Then I get a chance to tell them what it is. And, uh, you know, I, when people purchase from us, I write them notes. I write them, everybody personal notes because I love our customers. I have the best customers. And, and I thank them and I welcome them to the Bonefrog team. Uh, because when they start purchasing our products, they're now part of something bigger than themselves. They become a part of our, our team and, and it helps us give back. And we have a saying, and you're probably familiar with this, but it's LLTB, long live the brotherhood. And it's not just lip service or something that we say, it's, it's something that we truly believe in. And what that means is we make a lifelong commitment to our brothers, to their families, to the wives and kids that are left behind, to those that were injured. And for me, this is a way to continue to keep giving back, continue serving, uh, to give part of our proceeds back to the foundations that support all of them and take care of them. And it's, you know, when I'm standing there and my back's hurting because I'm old and <laughs> plugging away, trying to get through all these orders. And I think about my, my buddies and why I'm doing this in the first place and it makes it all worth it. It's, it's truly a, a labor of love uh, to own this company and, and to sell these products, talk about them. Where did the idea come from of doing coffee? So I am from Washington state. Washington state, uh, you know, is kind of the originator of, of coffee coffee is something that is a conversation starter and uh and you know like if we're going to get together for a business meeting or something like, hey let's meet at the local cafe or whatever so coffee is one of those things that helps start conversations and i was fortunate enough in my search because you know in special operations uh you've got to be kind of a jack of all trades yeah. but you find subject matter experts to help you learn things that you don't know and i found dave stewart Dave Stewart was the original founder of Seattle's Best Coffee. And anybody that knows coffee history knows that it was Dave Stewart and Howard Schultz here in the Seattle area back in the 70s that were battling it out for coffee supremacy. Wow. And, uh, you know, they really started the whole world craze of coffee loving and, and all of that. Um, Howard Schultz ended up buying out Dave in 2013. And we all know what happened with Starbucks and, and all that. Um, but Dave Stewart has a very unique way of roasting and um, people absolutely love it. It's a very rich, bold coffee with a smooth finish. There's no, shall I say, burnt aftertaste yeah. to coffee. People love it. And uh, Dave has been a tremendous mentor to me. He's taught me coffee roasting. He's uh, taught me the business. It's a great partnership to have with him and uh, really a blessing to have met him in the first place and, and uh, 
and learned all this about coffee, but that's why I picked coffee because it, it starts conversations and on my bags, you know, we tell a story, uh, each bag tells a story and that's important, or it ends up starting a conversation where we can talk more about different things. Um, and, and also you do, uh, merchandise with the bone frog logo on, which is available through your website as well. Don't you? That's right. So we have, you know, just like you're wearing the hat, we have the trucker yep. hat, flex fit hats. We have shirts and mugs and cups and beanies and uh, you name it. Um, we have all kinds of merchandise and it's a, I think it's a way, my ultimate goal is to someday fact, have so much. Yeah. Bone frog t-shirt just there. My hope is to someday, you know, have that out there where you, you come across somebody out in public and, and you see that they're wearing the same thing you're wearing. You're like, right on, man. Yeah. Because you, you get it. You understand their values and their principles and what, what their beliefs are because of, you know, they're wearing the bone frog. And, you know, every time you wear that or take a sip of the cup, uh, coffee, you're, you're truly honoring the fall and you're honoring their sacrifice. And, and I talk about that in the notes that I write to people. And I, I so greatly appreciate that from everybody. And as you can see, uh, next to me, I've got two bags of your coffee. I've got the, uh, the bone frog cup, uh, and also like the, the thermos mug as well, which, um, I use quite regularly in the car. Um, but yeah, um, so for people listening, he does write personal notes. I've had uh, two personal notes now, one, uh, the latest one, which came with the with the mugs and the door kicker coffee. Uh, <laughs> kindly wish me a happy new year on the note uh, and said thank you very much. But um, I, I find the personal touch absolutely fantastic. It's... It, it, it's that connection between yourself and the person that's buying the stuff. Cause obviously we're, we're separated by miles and miles of ocean. Me being in the UK and you being in the U S it's quite nice to have that personal touch over the distance. Yeah. And I, I make it a habit to try to call, you know, 20, 30 customers a month um, as I can fit it in. And I think it's really important just to reach out and just say, Hey, this is the owner of bone frog coffee. And it was just calling to thank you. And they, the responses I get is so funny. Um, they're like, oh, my God, I can't believe the CEO of a company is calling me. And I'm like, hey, I'm just another guy like you. And and we have these great conversations and they tell me stories about their time in the service and all that kind of stuff. And I, I think it's important, that connection to get to know my customers. I, I love that part the, the most of everything that I do. And, uh, you know, the door kicker is funny. It's our light roast, and that's uh, in uh, respect to the the breachers out there. That's a hard job. Those guys that we call it the cone of death. When uh, you stand in front of a doorway, you don't know what's on the other side, and you're ready to breach that thing, either by kicking it down or blowing it up or using a hooligan tool, but it's it's dangerous to stand in front of that door. And uh, that's our light roast. And people don't know that the light roast has the highest level of caffeine and uh, one of our advertisers was, oh, my God, I can't wait to have my door kicked down, uh, you know, in regards to drinking the light roast coffee with all the caffeine. So um, we we have a lot of fun with it. And, you know, it's also paying homage to those guys that are really doing very courageous jobs out there. Uh, now, the other thing that your company does, you do actually donate to foundations, uh, mm -hmm. charities that 
support Navy SEALs and their families. And if you'd like to just talk about that for a moment. So there's a number of different foundations within the Naval Special Warfare community, and, and they all do different things. And so I try to donate to as many as I can that help uh, families, kids, scholarships, um, guys that are wounded, or maybe just families that have, um, they have things that are needs immediately, right? They're in crisis and they need something. Um, the Navy SEALs Fund uh, works really well uh, expeditiously. They get stuff done within 24 hours. I've seen them do stuff that, like, how do you do that? But they do it through their connections and their networks, and they just get on the phone, and nobody takes a paycheck. It's all volunteers. So every dollar that's given to them goes directly to help somebody, which is super cool. Um, the Navy SEAL Foundation, which is a bigger foundation, does all kinds of events. Uh, they help with uh, TBI and PTSD and and families in crisis, and they have a scholarship program for kids in college. And um, you know, it goes on and on. The 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 Navy SEAL Veterans Foundation helps all the old retired guys like me. That you know, I always joke around. They they don't show it in the commercials these cool commercials uh they should show all the old guys with their walkers and canes can't can't move anymore but you know there's people that they have needs out there and that's what the money goes to help them what does the future look like for bone frog we are growing so fast right now we just moved into a we moved into a new space uh because we're we're growing uh, we're going to have a small retail area in the front uh, where people can come visit. Uh, you know, we'll serve coffee so they can try it uh, and have conversations so they can learn more about the company. Uh, so we moved to a city called Redmond. Um, and it's a great place. And our warehouse is much bigger for fulfillment and shipping and all that kind of stuff. Um, it's super fun. And we have affiliate uh, networks that we work with for broadcasting and podcasts and radio and, and all that kind of stuff. So it's, it's helping getting our message out across America anyways. And, um, because of customers like you, um, we are now shipping to the UK and Canada, which is new for us and, um, greatly appreciated that, you know, somebody across the pond would order our products and we're super super excited about that and we were talking offline about you know my parents living over there in, in the yeah. uk and that kind of stuff which uh it's small world so super cool. um, yeah. and for such a small country as well uh they lived in the same county as me which i found <laughs> even more phenomenal yeah I love that. And you would never know that kind of stuff unless you talk to people. And, and those are the stories that I really love and the connections and all that. It's cool. So uh, thinking of the um, SEAL community, obviously uh, SEAL team is quite a big CBS program and it's highlighted a lot of issues, um, mental health, TBIs. Um, what do you feel about the authenticity of how they relay those sort of messages across? Hmm. You know, I think they do a good job. There, there's a fine balance, I'm sure, with making shows. 
to keep people entertained as part of it, you know, so they try to tell a story to entertain, but the problems that they're bringing up are real. Hmm. Um, I have quite a few friends that uh, have issues for one reason or another. That was a long war. I was 17 years life and that doesn't even count all the other stuff that we do that nobody talks about and uh it takes its toll on you um i talked to different organizations that do this for a living matter of fact just a couple days ago i was on a phone call with a a nonprofit here in the seattle area that's uh set up to help people with ptsd and tbi and uh uh, what I can do to help them raise funds and, and that kind of stuff. And the U S government, I think with every other government, you know, with their forces does a really good job in training us to do our job, right. And what we do, but they don't do a very good job training us on what happens on the other side of that mission the things that you experienced, uh, how to deal with those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, those guys, you know, they compartmentalize it until they get back off deployment. Um, and then they have issues with their wives and kids and, and stuff like that. It's, it's hard. It's not, um, I would say, natural uh, for human beings to go do these things. And there, I think, needs to be a bigger emphasis on training people prior to going out on deployment and what to expect and how to deal with it. And I know the NSW community has done a good job um, putting some of those things in place and even having a decompression time in Germany for a couple of weeks. There were times, you know, I'd come back off deployment and it'd be the next day. I'm, I'm back home. That's... <laughs> Back then probably wasn't the best idea because you're still in, uh, you're still in that mindset, uh, you know, and you got to turn that stuff off or at least have time to turn it off. Did you, um, obviously alluding to the fact that you, you come off from deployment and you're back in normal reality world, day-to-day life. Did you ever find that you, you struggled with day-to-day life that you were, um, when you were in a busy shopping mall, you were looking at exits, you were still sort of mm-hmm. looking at people in, in, a, in a different manner, sort of thinking, well, do they have a, an S vest or, you know, are they concealing? Were you looking around at different viewpoints and, and thinking, or were you just getting on with day-to-day life? I think I got on with day-to-day life. I think there's a misconception that guys are hypervigilant and that kind of yeah. stuff. I didn't have that problem at all. Um, you are trained uh, to do certain things and be vigilant and doorways and security cameras. And there's things they teach you and that never leaves you. You know, you're always like that just cause that was your job, but I was never hyper vigilant or, you know, hitting the floor because there's a loud noise or any of that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, um, I remember during an interview one time, uh, after I had gotten out as being interviewed for this big job, and the person interviewing me said, uh, what, what would you do right now if a car backfired in the parking lot? And I go, I don't know. What would you do? <laughs> I'm like, that is a, that's one of the dumbest questions I've ever heard. Uh, so 
no, I didn't have any problems like that. Uh, you know, maybe some people do. Yeah. Uh, I, I never had anything like that. So. Do you feel you were, you were quite lucky in that case that you, you know, you, you've had all these deployments um, and you've come back uh, not as injured as, as some other operators might have been? Well, I think it all has to do, I think everything in life has to do with perspective, right? And how you perceive these things that happen when you're over there. One, it's, you know, each of us had different experiences. Um, some of them were more severe than others. And, and then it's also uh, the way you perceive it. Um, and then the support system that you have around you, leadership and your brotherhood and all those kind of things to be able to sit and talk about it. So you don't compartmentalize it and let it smolder and that kind of stuff. I think for a lot of seals, you know, we're very close and we do talk about those things. And, um, I know being the corpsman, the medic, uh, guys would come to me, you know, maybe they felt more comfortable talking to doc than they did somebody else, but <laughs> You know, just sitting and chatting and working through stuff and talking and um, we get through it. And then, you know, for those that really had quite horrific experiences, there's a lot of support system out there and different foundations to help. Yeah. Uh, um, I do have some friends that have stuff like that. You know, they they lock this away in the black box in their head and uh, they need that box to be opened and let it out and get it to go away so there is that as well where you were just saying there that there was the closeness of the team uh that brotherhood where you could actually sit down and, and, and talk to each other and talk about your experiences obviously that that helped and that's um where i got the name of the podcast from the kick cage because obviously that would be the place where the operators would be you know gearing up or gearing down after after a mission and that would be their chance to talk so that's where the name of that this podcast actually oh. I love it from I love it yeah um yeah you know there's places in the teams that uh you know whether it's back in the the medical office or up in the platoon hut or or just going out and grabbing a beer hanging out and talking with your buddies and them feeling comfortable enough to open up and talk about some of this stuff and especially now that we're all retired uh, there's a lot more talking about it than there was when we were active duty um, because nobody wants to be perceived as weak and, uh, and you know, it hinders open conversation in some cases. So a lot of talking now and uh, helping each other out. And it's really what it's all about, you know, taking care of your brothers and getting them through it. Having that uh, alpha male persona of being a Navy SEAL, and like you're just saying, um, talking about things could be perceived as a sign of weakness. Do you think pushing forward, you know, as in it's 2023, that we should be dropping that stigma and, you know, allowing ourselves um, as alpha males to be able to openly talk about these issues or situations? Of course. You know, back when I first came in, um, there was much less conversation really it was very guys were more quiet and uh you put forward a, a much more uh, strong facade and you didn't talk about things you know just didn't um i think it's a part of 
one is part of aging, right? We get older and, and uh, we're more willing to talk about things because we're more mature. And two, the times have changed a little bit and have allowed for guys to be a little bit more open. This is probably one of the the most alpha male uh, small groups you're ever going to meet, right? These are the most adrenaline-filled, high-speed, aggressive dudes you're ever going to meet. And and even then, I think, you know, guys will, they'll talk because they love each other and they take care of each other, you know? Uh, so I think there's a little bit more of that going on than there used to be 30 plus years ago. Well, that's good. Um, so a couple of questions, uh, before we close out the interview, the first one is what advice would you give to somebody who is obviously staring down the barrel of leaving the military via, you know, retirement or, you know, voluntary leaving? That's a great question. (laughs) So all of you that are out there that are in that position, I would say to you, you know, take the time to just think it through. Um, I have some friends that left too early. They didn't get their retirement. They didn't get, you know, those type of things. And they look back on it and they regret it. The time goes by quick. And if you're getting close to retirement, just stick it out. Just you can do it. And it's really worth uh, the retirement pay and, and, uh, medical and all that kind of stuff. For those of you that have reached retirement and it's time, you know, look at all the things in your life and, and uh, you'll know if the decision is right for you. It was for me because I, I I needed stability for my kids and their school and you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, But there's so much more on the other side that you can take what you've learned, the skills, the leadership, the, you know, there's so much it transfers over and the rest of it, you just figure out, you know, that's what we're good at. We adapt and overcome and uh, get outside your comfort zone. I am way outside my comfort zone. (laughs) And, uh, And that's a good thing, you know, find something that you have a passion for and just make it happen. Just find the subject matter experts and go out there and use all that experience uh to your benefit and go do great things whatever that is that you want to do with your life um you can do it it's scary it's different you're gonna miss your buddies but uh they're gonna retire at some point too and then you all get back together and drink beer and it's great and uh yeah you know take the time make the decision and then go out and do great things that's some sound advice now the last question is a is a two-part question uh, first part looking forward where do you see yourself in five years and the second part of the question is what advice as you sat there now would you give to your younger self as he was signing that piece of paperwork going into the military wow okay where do I see myself in five years I uh, we're trying to to grow as fast as we can within reason Mm -hmm. to create a really strong foundation, uh, not lose our mission statement, stay on track, but to grow as big as we can. I always say the bigger we get, the more we can give back, the more good we can do. And so, you know, in in five years, I'd, I'd like to, you know, at least four X every year, 
um, in our growth, uh, get bigger, improve our processes, um, sell more coffee and bring more awareness uh, to what we're doing and what the bone frog stands for. Looking back on my career, what would I tell myself? Yeah. I'm not sure. Um, I had so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to tell myself to stop doing that. Uh, we had a lot of fun. Um, there's, uh, I don't know, little things that I, maybe the direction, the choices that I made in duty stations, uh, things that I, just decisions that I made. I think at one point I was gone for half my son's life. Yeah. That's hard. And I don't know if I could even change it because it was just the, the trajectory of what we were in at the time. My daughter, my oldest daughter was born September 10th. We were sitting in the hospital holding her when the planes hit the twin towers oh. and then our lives changed uh forever after that and you know i looked at my wife and she looked at me and it it, it changed significantly that was a, a big turning point and i don't know if i could change any of it you know it just happened and we all went and and we came back we did another workup we went again and again and again um, those are some of my biggest regrets that I missed, you know, those parts of my kids' lives and Christmas and Thanksgiving and holidays and birthdays. And God, I think I missed both my daughter's birthdays for 15 years. Wow. You can't get those back. There were times, you know, I'd, I'd come back at the airport and my, my, uh, daughter, my oldest daughter would, she'd look at me mean look on her so mad and she'd stomp her foot and she'd walk away and i hadn't seen her in you know six plus months and it, it would take her a few days to even talk to me she was so mad at me those are the things that i look back on and i wish i could change yeah. uh, if there's any way that i could change that i would so hopefully that answers your question it does um, well thank you very much for for joining us on this episode it's been fascinating to hear your insights into buds uh, and what it was like for a uh, recruit and obviously a trainer that was that was some interesting insight and uh, thank you very much for sharing us all about the uh, the bone frog what it stands for and, and what you're doing with the brand and company so uh, thank you very much for speaking with us today thank you so much dan and for all all of you that are listening listening out there please uh visit our website at um bonefrog-coffee.com bonefrog-coffee.com visit our website we'd love for you to join our team and try our products and share the word of uh, these great uh human beings that sacrificed everything thank you so much i appreciate it dan for having me on your podcast it's my pleasure it's been fascinating talking to you thank you